Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 59, Rethinking a Midlife Crisis. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Health Radio. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Michael, good to have you here. Thanks, you too. Uh, we're here talking about uh, something that may be um, pertinent to both of us, <laughs> but I don't know if any of us are actually going to admit it or not. Ow. <laughs> I think I just called Michael old, but I'm not sure. Uh, Fusion Health Radio is an opportunity for Michael and I to sit down and s- just talk about stuff. Uh, with relation to health and diet and nutrition and lifestyle and mindset. Uh, Midlife crisis, I think, uh, rings all those bells. Uh, Last time we were here, uh, we had a discussion with um, Scott Dempsey all about his... um, his carnivore diet. That was a bit of a, a, a different different experience for both Michael and I because we had a guest in. Um, Michael, do you want to give us a bit of a recap as to what that was like? Uh, well, I can say from uh, kind of more personal uh, experience as one of the people kind of who is half the show sometimes, it was really amazing to hear the show, like hearing you talk to uh, Scott and just to sit here and kind of be a fly on the wall for a while going like, oh, I get that this is such a different thing when 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 i'm hearing how people hear it so it's given me a, an inspiration to uh come at this maybe i don't know uh with a different awareness specifically to the conversation with scott um he's gone on uh ketogenic diets he's tried pretty much a lot of different things uh and you'll hear a bit about his personal story and uh why he has made those moves in his life and I think it's been about three, four months that he's been on the carnivore diet, which is basically just, you know, and I think he's focusing mostly on hamburger and fish and the uh, yeah, bit of chicken and things like that, which is an, almost an entirely all meat diet. So it's a really interesting conversation to, I don't know, hear about what that's like from the inside. And to just talk to people about the overall, you know, medical science perspective on what could go wrong and what could go right with eating animal protein and water. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, definitely um, uh, totally eye-opening uh, to hear his experience. Uh, for me to consider doing that as a diet just for myself, when I uh, on the drive home uh, after the podcast, I was sort of joking with him that we should rename it to the bachelor's diet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's in your fridge? Well, there's a few beer and a whole bunch of meat. Right. Real easy to real easy to decide what you're going to have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner if that's all that's in there. So, um, yeah, it was uh, definitely uh, a lot of fun. And um, I'm looking forward to uh, having that kind of an opportunity again with uh, another guest. Um, if we get our technology figured out, maybe we can even do it with somebody on the phone. I, I hear there's this interweb thing. So yeah, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure Google will help me with that. Okay, Google, <laughs> how do I how do I record this? Uh, today we're talking about something completely different, though. Uh, no longer in the to the realm of uh, the carnivore diet, a midlife crisis. Uh, I'm sure. Um, our listeners have an idea of what a midlife crisis is. I have my ideas because of, uh, well, I guess I'm midlife, uh, but I'm not in a crisis. So I don't know if I really know about it, short of whatever I may have seen through um, like movies or TV or that sort of thing. A midlife crisis is an opportunity for somebody to divorce their wife and buy a Corvette. I mean, that's how I know midlife yeah, crisis. That, 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 that's the cultural avatar of the West, and that includes like Europe and a few other places. Uh, yeah. The word midlife crisis, if you were looking for an image in the encyclopedia, would be 
some out of shape midlife person in a Corvette driving up and down Main Street trying to like be cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and so just on that real quick, uh, when I was in my 20s and I was working at um, putting myself through college, working at a paper mill, there was one fellow there um, who um, I worked with his kid. So this guy worked there, his kid worked there, he divorced his wife, and he started dating somebody who was only a year older than his kid. Um, and I just thought, wow, this only happens in the movies. And um, his kid, my friend, was actually like, yeah, I only thought it happened in the movies too, but wow. You know, and he had all kinds of choice words for his dad. Needless to say that that, that relationship, relationship deteriorated pretty quickly wow. between the two of them. It wasn't very graceful between them. And so hopefully uh, uh, we can enlighten people as to how that might be a different way of being. Where do you want to start with this today? Midlife crisis? Well, I mean, it's not just men, it's men and women, and it's not just about cars and trying to get laid. Although that's, again, the kind of characterization we have of it. Um, the first thing I, I thought of when, when we decided that this would be a good conversation to have uh, was just sort of the choice point that people are in in life, you know, midlife, obviously, in this context, that makes us start looking for a completely different kind of decision tree or, you know, adaptation to the world. And when I was thinking about that, I was going like, okay, here I am. I'm, I just turned 50 a few months ago. You're turning 50 pretty quick. And, uh, eek. <laughs> um, we, you know, the, the, you sound much younger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the place that I found myself sitting was, you know, cause I'm always trying to find the thing that balances out masculine, feminine, yin, yang, things like that. I don't know it's decades of Chinese medicine can <laughs> changes you way you look at things. And I came up with, you know, this, like, this word, like really. So we can say the word like, really, like it's a question, like, really? And then we can say it kind of like, um, uh, something is really dot, 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 but you know, that can be anything really exciting, really boring, really weird. So when I think about, you know, midlife, I, you know, and this is, could be any kind of transition in life from puberty to your fifties to retiring or whatever, but it's finding that willingness to sit in that kind of not so much a tightrope, but there is a bit of a fork in the road because a part of our mind is asking the question, really, like this is modern life or really this is my bank account or this is my marriage or uh, this is what I'm going to do nine to five uh, until I retire or, you know, I'll never climb Machu Picchu or whatever. So there's a part of the mind that's got that kind of almost cynical kind of question mark, which is, eh, really? Like, come on, like this, this just seems unfair or boring or limiting in a way that I think just fundamentally makes people, I don't know, more itchy and uncomfortable and impatient and likely to buy a Corvette and go looking for, you know, college students to get to know. And, uh, that's a very dissatisfying place for people. It's just when you, you actually have to sit there and ask yourself, like, this is it, like, this is my life now. You know, in midlife crisis, you know, as a conversational topic and as a choice point in life, I mean, most people run into that when their kids are beginning to become mature enough to have enough autonomy to no longer be in, in need uh, or in the same way uh, relying on their parents. So now you have people, I mean, I'm experiencing this now, I'm, you know, a couple of months into the empty nest experience and that definitely changes how I think about what to do next with my day, my week or my weekend because for, you know, 17 years, it was not up to me <laughs> right? in, in the best way possible because parenting is an amazing uh, journey to go on. But uh, that's, that's really what creates this, this shift in experience, you know, like now, now what is the most meaningful thing? And if you don't have that because of your inner 
makeup or desires or uh, your mindset or your curiosity, then you're just less left with the vapid shopping mall of go to work, pay bills, pay taxes, wake up, rinse, repeat, or whatever. So I totally understand that part of the really kind of cynicism. And then the other one is kind of like the idea of that, you know, in midlife, things get really, right, really boring. Because if you're, you know, working nine to five or you know your marriage feels like it's work nine to five and um, your friendships, which are probably three people and, you know, and that's actually if you're lucky in, in your midlife to have really good friends, um, life gets really, you know, and that's why people sometimes in midlife would have an affair or uh, start gambling secretly or, you know, you know, we could go back into the conversation about online pornography it's, it's just that when life gets really, you know, dot, 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 but more in the grumpy sense than the cynical sense, you know, that polarizes life, you know, and because it's about a midlife crisis and that is going to be about intimacy and sexuality on a certain level, I mean, that's the biggest really for a lot of people because sex needs to be really. What about the idea of, so, so I, I get the direction that you're, ta you're, you're taking that and, um, Part of me thinks uh, there's got to be something to our physical changes in life uh, at that age that actually, I don't know, if I'm turning 50 next week, is there like a magic switch that's going to flip inside my head that says, okay, all of a sudden this is going to present itself and you're going to want to buy that Corvette. Like, I mean, is there, is there something inside me that actually changes? Like, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to ask such a big question. I want it to be sort of uh, a general question. Is Are there physical changes uh, to our to ourselves that actually uh, aggravate the idea of, you know, being bored or this whole idea of really? So we, uh, to answer that question, I think there's two parts of my, my mind that are saying, well, one is probably a three hour conversation on the balance of neurotransmitters, inflammation, growth hormones, steroid hormones, and all of that, that actually manage aging and, uh, virility and reproductive capacity and, you know, sex drive and stuff like that. Um, so I think, I mean, that, that we could dive into that as a geek out, but, you know, the other thing I just, uh, one of my notes I had was mirror, mirror on the wall. Like you're, you're in midlife and you go to brush your teeth or, you know, maybe not pop a zit, but, you know, deal with whatever other blemish you're, you know, working on that day. You know, the, the direction in, in that, uh, mildly shamanic experience of looking at your body change. And, and now you're over the hill of how we, you know, look at you know, statistical graphs and momentum towards aging and decline and the inevitable end of me kind of thing. Uh, I think that's a, a more subjectively easy thing for people to think about because, mm -hmm. you know, as we get older, we either get rounder or we get shinier in certain areas of ourselves, or <laughs> <laughs> uh, grayer or wrink more wrinkly, um, you know, skin, our skin changes in, in various ways. So it, it's very easy for, for the mirror, mirror thing, I think to be, uh, something that compels people to start making more impatient decisions mm -hmm. in the sense of really, and I really want to go, really want to go back to that because I'm just going to ask you, Anthony, I'm going to say, um, just to, to kind of maybe bring us both, both into the same part of the conversation. Sure. Um, say the word really, and then follow it up with an adjective that has to do with what you think most people have that has to do with the worst parts of midlife sex. Uh, really unimaginative, really boring, uh, really repetitive, uh, really 
Um, when was the last time that happened? Yeah. And we could do the same thing and I'll ask you if you don't mind to do the same sure. thing, but to choose the most positive affirmational adjectives, because it can go that way too. Yeah. It'd be really awesome or really spectacular or really, uh, mind blowing. Yeah. Or really imaginative or really passionate or really yeah. patient or really intimate in a different way. Cause now you have an empty nest and it's, you know, time to, <laughs> I don't know, reinitiate the couch in the living room floor or whatever. Let, let me hold you on that. I got a story that popped in my mind. <laughs> uh -oh. When I was a kid, I remember, okay, so I'm the youngest of five. By the time uh, I was a teenager, my folks, uh, my dad's 40 years older than I am. Right. So, um, I can just remember, uh, my, uh, brother moving out of the house and, um, I was almost moving out of the house and saying to my dad at one point, Hey, now you guys don't have to close the door every time you guys are having sex. And my mom just sort of looked at me with this look on her face, like sex. Are you kidding us? No, never. And my dad was just sort of sitting there and he had this twinkle in his eye. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so sort of like, Oh, this is going to be good. So anyways, th that on the idea of, you know, really caring and passionate and all that sort of stuff and at a different level because you no longer have to, you know, make sure the mattress doesn't squeak. Yeah. So we can take that same, what I would call contextualizing uh, activity or kind of, I don't know, mental exercise, you know, and then you look at your individual life, you know. Uh, in a marriage or not, with kids or not, uh, in a job that you love or not, uh, being an entrepreneur or being in what I would call wage slavery and, you know, other things, you could take the word really and actually start getting into some really deeply negative adjectives. Sure. Because life in midlife is a negotiation or it's an adventure. And the negotiation, when it gets negative, uh, especially in our part of the world. I mean, the first thing we see a, a lot of people getting into is this kind of apathy, which is, well, I mean, why bother deciding or negotiating or even caring because there's no big win, you mm -hmm. know? And this goes back to the difference between, um, the unfortunate, um, misassumption that human, uh, endeavor and hierarchy and competition and opportunity are on a very even sliding scale. You know, in the sense of you add one, you get one, you add two, you get two, uh, you know, human opportunity in the sense of how we work together, how we compete and all that stuff is on a very different kind of graph. So you either work your ass off and then get a huge bump in, uh, feedback and, and response or, you know, cash in your bank or whatever you're looking for. So again, fundamentally we're in this negotiation you know, how to make decisions. And we have this assumption that life is on this sort of balanced fair curve, but intuitively or subconsciously or instinctually, we know that the curve of accelerated, you know, possibility and, um, you know, adventure and, uh, what, I'm trying to think of the word for kind of the risk reward part of life, mm -hmm. you know? So if the risk reward part is like, well, I'm, I might get a small amount of, you know, uh, Benefit, payoff, payoff, pay benefit. You know, if I add 5% of effort to my life, I'll get 5% benefit. But if I add 15 or 20% effort to my life, my life, I might actually get 50% benefit. Hmm. And that's, that's the tricky thing about, um, what we think is going on in the sense of fair play and what's actually going on that we all kind of know subconsciously. So that creates a kind of apathy for people. And that apathy is why bother with this negotiation? Cause you know, I, I push a little bit, I get a little bit. 
you know, I see other people push what seems like a little bit and they get a lot, hmm. right? You may not know the difference between 5% and 20%. You just see the difference in pushing and results. And, and that's a big part of midlife because, you know, you, you're, you got this far, you know, it's probably not going to get a lot worse, you know, in the sense of what we see as outcomes. So now we're in this negotiation and we're aware that it's maybe not as worth it as it was 20 years ago. And this creates a kind of jealousy hmm. and a kind of resentment, you know, around other people, because it just seems unfair that, you know, if we're all pushing what seems to be the same amount, again, we're not getting the same amount of results. And that for a lot of people creates a kind of impatience or unfairness or I don't know, kind of a crazy wisdom kind of inner turmoil where, where we're going to be more likely to act out in ways that are going to seem like we're kind of goofing up a little bit, you know, oh, I'm going to suddenly get a motorcycle and tattoos on my neck, you know, just cause that would look badass. And, uh, you know, whether or not that's the best thing for anything in the world doesn't matter because I'm in that place of jealousy and resentment. And this can turn, turn into deep self-frustration. And this is why so many people in midlife are on antidepressants and other things, because we're not really aware of sort of a fundamental equation around how we actually compete or how success actually works. So I think that that's a really big thing to just bring to people's attention is unless you're, you know, completely comfortable in your life, and that would be awesome if you were, if you want to change it, you really have to sit down and look at what makes things, what actually works for people and what doesn't. Because if you're thinking that this is fair and if you just, you know, open a door, you're, you're going to, you know, it's all bells, whistles, unicorns and magic fairy dust. Well, maybe that, that happens to people like the lottery. But for most of us, if you want to change your life, it's 20% all day, every day above and beyond all day, every day to really see something happen. And... Maybe I'll just step back in this because I guess I'm trying to speak to something that's, I don't know, like the invisible demon in families, relationships, and even in the way we talk to ourselves inside of our heads. Uh, I have had this experience maybe twice in the time I was, you know, I had a child in my house and I was, you know, single parent kind of doing that thing where we ran into this. And that was pretty good for 17 years to only have this come up twice. And it's what I would call the passive aggressive screw you dance. Screw you, dance. Well, I'm not allowed to say the other word, so. <laughs> but it's a pa passive aggressive, you know, yeah. F-bomb dance. And uh, it's a way that we behave in every kind of relationship when we decide to be less effective to see if the other one in the relationship will pick up the slack. Okay. In, in some way. Because, again, we're frustrated, we're bored, we're apathetic. Maybe we're frustrated with ourselves, we're resentful, we're jealous. And this happens to everybody when we get kind of like, you know, stuck in a stick in the mud kind of, you know, place within ourselves. And, you know, teenagers, you know, spend about two years there just because they don't, they haven't adulted enough to really get how it works. So they're, they're sitting there with, you know, un un untested tools trying to figure stuff out. You know, and that's, you know, call that the first quarter life crisis because it's, it's almost the same quality, right? So, you know, passive aggressive basically means you're not going to go out of your way to make anything better until something gets really, really, uh, crisis like, you know, so let's say your car is making a weird noise. You don't do anything about it until it explodes or crashes or something falls off. Right. Right. As a, you know. <laughs> Have you seen my car? <laughs> As a, no, I'm just, wasn't about that, man. I'm just trying to make a visual metaphor for passive aggressive, right? But if we decide to wait and see what, what will happen when the wheels fall off, what we're really doing is asking 
without asking the other person in the equation, are you aware that one of the wheels is falling off? And I'm going to stop overcorrecting in any way and see what your corrections look like. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a sort of a not very effective way of, of trying to get other people to show up. And it comes from very latent human cultures that were much more collaborative, where if I slow down in, in without communicating why, everybody else would naturally speed up, but there would be a conversation about, you know, what, what just changed. So, you know, it's a call for collaboration, but because it's passive aggressive, it's more or less uh, an insinuation that you're not really as interested in what's going on as me. So I'm not going to show much interest. And if you don't replace that interest or that ability to, you know, make things better, then I win. Because hmm. you're the loser, because I said it's your turn to keep it together and you, you didn't. So, hey. Right. And, and that happens in all kinds of ways. I mean, I'd say half of it happens in the kitchen. The other half probably happens in the bathroom and the kitchen table in the sense of, you know, how people get stuff done. So here we have people in, in life. They're going through this difficult period of time when they don't see, you know, the point of, of their passions being applied because you know, of all the things I just talked about. And then there's the midlife thing of TikTok. You're over the hill. Maybe you have 20 years of being able to make money, you know, before you're supposed to retire and eat cat food or something. So hang on, before you go down that road, um, is would, would you say that um, the idea of midlife crisis affects people who are um, in families as, a, as opposed to somebody who's single? I don't have kids mm-hmm. and I'm not married. Um, when, you're, when you're talking about this whole... Um, you know, loss of expectation or, you know, disillusionment of life, it sounds like that's based on, you know, I was a parent, I was, quote, meaningful to somebody or something, and now I'm no longer a parent, and therefore, or, I mean, I'm, I'm a parent, but the kid's out of the house, and therefore I feel, mm, depressed. No, I would say this is across the board of everyone, even if you've been single your entire life and you lived in the same apartment since you were 22. Okay. Okay. I mean... Because, because like I said, there, there's a, there is a pretty big biological component to this. It's just pretty complicated. Right. And then there's a sociological one because the biological one and or the sociological one is adding even more to the, the negative signaling that we get, you know, because if, if you say, you know, you were that guy or girl, it's, you know, you're 50 and you've been in the same apartment since you were 22 and you've had, you know, four or five interesting relationships that never really went anywhere because maybe that's just not how you roll with relationship. But keep in mind your entire social sphere, circle of influence, you know, is changing in the same way. Because unless everyone you know lives in that apartment and they all moved in at 22 at the same time you did, they're not really your people. Although some of them, you know, could be. Because the midlife crisis on the social level is about how momentum looks amongst your tribe. Because now everyone you know, I mean, if you went to a high school reunion, I don't know why people, you know, I think that, I mean, maybe that's like a, that would be an interesting conversation is the, the pathos psychology of, of a high school reunion from 10 years <laughs> to 20 years to 30 years, you know, in, in the sense of, you know, because you see ha- half the sitcoms that have to do with a high school reunion, mm-hmm. it's all about high school. Well, it's all about some sort of competition or whatever it was, you know, but it's also about way who, back then. But it's also about who's failing the fastest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? sure. Who, who lost whatever they lost the worst. Right. Because, and then you look at the people who are like the most awesome, if it's the king or queen of the prom, I think that's the thing in the U.S. I don't remember having that experience in Canada, but, 
Um, there's always going to be the popular kids, but everyone goes to see the popular kids doing worse, not better. Right. Right. So there again, we're, 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 we're a bit like hyenas that way, you know, <clears throat> you know, when we look at competition, our sense of self is not only based on our ability to compete, it's based on other people's inability to compete hmm. or, or continue or to keep it together. Right. So that, that's a part of this, this TikTok thing is, you know, we, we all know that, you know, based on what we may call high school reunion metaphor, the part of our mind that's hoping more of the other people than our people fail at this is the same voice that looks at parts of you instead of other parts of you being the ones that fail at this. Because that, that's where insecurity starts is when you start relying on parts of yourself and then those parts of yourself aren't that reliable anymore. And then you either go, oh no, I'm going to be one of the people who, you know, at the next high school reunion is going to look like the, the loser, <laughs> uh, or I'm going to start trying to figure out another way to, to make things work, you know, but that, that, the, the social part of it's a big part of it because a midlife thing only matters, uh, on the outside based on how it affects your relationships. I mean, 90% of it is the insane turmoil on the inside, but what we see in the sense of what we can make fun about in you know, sitcoms and funny movies is about the stuff we see people doing that are overreactions on the outside, like buying a car and, you know, chasing younger people around. Mm -hmm. But again, there's lots more to it, but it's, it's usually at that choice point when people feel the positives and the negatives really tilting towards the negatives. They feel that TikTok of age, they feel the momentum of sort of sliding down the slope of being over the hill that acting out impatiently and aggressively and without much forethought around cheating or gambling away your, you know, nest egg or, uh, going on weird drug binges or, you know, suddenly needing to go and climb Machu Picchu or something, you know, the, the fact that we, we act out and instead of, you know, find inner resources is, is the part that most people are kind of, you know, finding things to laugh about at other people, but honestly, most, for the most part, you know, be nervous about on the inside. Cause what if I turn out to be one of those people who zigs instead of zags and completely screws up my family or my money or my job or my, uh, self, uh, I guess self-love in a way. Cause you know, you might make some really weird choices that turn out to make you feel really bad about those choices. Mm -hmm. Is, uh, this idea of midlife crisis, I mean, we're Canadian, mm -hmm. we're speaking to an audience that are English speakers, you know, I guess Western, uh, society or culture. Is it the same across the world, uh, in your experience? I mean, you, you, I'm, I'm speaking to the guy that knows a whole lot about, uh, Chinese medicine and perhaps Asian cultures and that sort of thing. Is it the same there or in? Well, in, in old cultures, there's either four puberties that are acknowledged as stages of growth. So if you're not engaged in that and the people you spend time with actually, uh, honoring that and speaking to you about that. And I say, you know, from a indigenous cultural point of view, which is a part of my, uh, cultural background and a part of how I've been raised up by men and women in my life. You know, if you go through those natural puberties and people say, oh, it looks like you're be becoming, you know, your, your, you know, more mature self in this specific way, that, uh, mirroring from the people in your life that you rely on, cause they're, you know, 20 years older than you lets you know that you are moving in, in the right direction. And then maybe 20 years, you could turn back to someone, you know, your age now and say, yeah, you know, you are making the right decisions because we can all watch what you're doing. And it looks like it's always looked. Hmm. 
right? Because these cultures, that's that's why they're cultures. This is this is what we do. I mean, it's almost the same thing in in the more adolescent West, and I mean that uh, not only to be I don't know a bit pokey, but to just make the point: if if your culture doesn't have more than one puberty, you're kind of stuck being an adolescent in your life. Which is why the midlife crisis in 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 the West, the adolescent West, is so f- sort of rife with humor because people default to what worked when you were eighteen, hmm. right? Which is kind of a weird thing because you want to hang out with those young people to reaffirm your youth, right? Because if your culture is an adolescent culture, that's the win, right? I, I had another tear like I did when I was twenty-two, yay! Because that's that's on the menu of cool. If you're in a culture that goes back thousands and tens of thousands of years. Uh, that celebrated that kind of rhythm, you know, that big picture view of life. Of course, it's going to be the same thing because there's all these biological things, but it's been naturally nudged and kind of comforted and then maybe pushed a little bit and or perhaps banished depending on how badly things are going, uh, you know, for millennia. So it's it's never even a question in your mind as to how life goes. It's just how you're going to go through those those puberties and those transitions. And I think that's a big picture in life that if if you're not aware of, kind of incremental growth and, and movement in a direction in life, then you're, you're basically, you know, back in, in that pioneer sort of idea of me versus the world. And I'm always just going to be just me. And I don't have any expectation of being any other version of me. And if I'm an adolescent, oh, well, let's run with that. Mm-hmm. Right. So definitely, you know, answering your question, the older a culture is and the more in place, uh, how to handle these transitions from adolescent puberty to kind of the early adulthood, 28 to 32, what astrologers call Saturn return, there, there's another kind of puberty that's just as impactful on some levels as what we call a midlife crisis. Right. So it's interesting, you know, from older cultures, they had this stuff figured out thousands of years ago. They just gave it interesting, you know, names and contexts and celebrated the, I don't know, the letting go of youthful passions, you know, to transit into the mature person who has, uh, you know, a different orientation to goals and, and outcomes. And then that happens again about 15, 20 years later. And then it happens again when you're 65 or 70 when, well, how you get things done changes in a much bigger way. Well, it, it sounds like it's a, a much more... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? An, an, an honest uh, perspective on what it means to be human is to actually say, well, hey, you're this age right now, and in 20 years you're this age, and this is what you can expect, and in 20 years you can expect this sort of thing. It's like, it's just kind of like uh, calling a spade a spade. This is kind of what it is, and... You might call that wisdom. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as, as opposed to here, where it's kind of like um, this um, stumbling into the future... And not really knowing what's going on. And then all of a sudden going, uh, I'm just going to make stuff up. Uh, buy a Corvette. <laughs> or let's, you know, let's resort to uh, what sort of thinking um, sort of felt good mm-hmm. or, 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 or whatever. Like sort of relying on um, ideas that aren't necessarily supportive for the individual in that moment. But might have been good decisions uh, or popular decisions even in the past. So I think fundamentally, when we decide to look into a a deeper sense of what it's like, you know, because what we're speaking to is kind of an overarching view of, you know, how this process of growing up in the world looks in different cultures. At a certain point, I think it's good to go deep into just what you may call the, the depth psychology of human needs. You know, and there's a guy, Maslow, he's got this hierarchy of needs that's often looked like a pyramid and, uh, it would probably be too long to go into all the detail of that but his fundamental structure is you know 
people rest on the foundation of their pyramid of solving needs, like physiological survival needs, and then less crucial survival needs, but comfort needs, and then more sort of social interaction. Uh, you know, as like young children, you know, we were cold, totally dependent on our parents in the sense that you have a need right. and then you're less dependent on your parents, but you can still make a lot of noise to get what you want. And then eventually you kind of have to work into a more dynamic, interactive relationship with your parents where, you know, you get an allowance to clean your room and, you know, if you do extra chores, you might get, you know, that sort of thing you wanted. And then at eventual, you know, level of maturity and, uh, in terms of children, uh, you get to this place of cooperation where, you, you know, the, the big win is you being able to uh, interact with people in a consistent and meaningful and, and generous and reciprocal way that feels good in the sense of your autonomy, mm-hmm. right? So it's easy to see that as, you know, kids going from two-year-olds to like 18-year-olds. When you look at the needs of any uh, individual growing up as a mature adult from the inside out, it's kind of the same. You know, once you've handled the, the, the obvious stuff that you need, the next thing that's really difficult for people in, you know, modern life is that sort of third state of uh, becoming a whole person that has to do with sharing because that means you have to not only allow other people to inspire you in the sense of not just motivation, but uh, living by example um, uh, giving you advice and then you having the same sense of, you know, uh, how, how can I be a, a source of generosity and, uh, reciprocity and inspiration to the people around me? Cause that's what a community of peers really does. And if you don't have that, you know, then you're going to have to come up with something that's close to that. And unfortunately, very unfortunately, what a lot of people do is they start trying to find social media resources of mentors or avatars or other people that seem to be the kind of person they want to be. But because there's no interaction and there is this internal sense of expectation that now your job is to become that kind of person, it isn't really about you anymore. So unfortunately, the way that we kind of nowadays meet Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we kind of hit this weird fork in the road, you know, in early midlife, where the ways that we would naturally find really good social connection and meaningful mentoring and and opportunities to really feel uh, mirrored by other people, you know, is is kind of degrading to the point where you know you could walk around and ask any anyone oh, what kind of podcast do you listen to or what's your favorite youtube channel or what's your favorite i don't know sitcom or you know where do you go to be uh, in some way more satisfied than you would be otherwise about life or about you in the world and unfortunately i mean i, I would say not unfortunately um it's awesome in my mind because it's a good resource to have it's like storytelling Sure. I'm going to listen to a podcast or I'm going to, you know, do some more research on something or, you know, watch a great show that really, you know, has a touching, um, storyline that really teaches us how to understand something difficult about life. You know, so it's not that these things are completely unavailable. They're just available at a distance. Hmm. And that distance sometimes stops us as autonomous beings from feeling like we can actually get there. Right. Cause it's always so far away or somebody else. And that, that mirrors that same thing of feeling kind of an apathy and then a resentment and jealousy and then a sense of inner frustration. And unfortunately, you know, that's just going to keep generating the same kind of, well, I would say relative pathology. And of course, then there's that tick, tick biological clock thing that's going to change your personality in a fundamental way. So I would just ask, you know, to repeat 
well, maybe I'll put that another way. I would encourage everyone to just ask themselves, do you feel that you can consistently and competently meet your needs and the needs of the people who rely on you? And given that, can you also uh, find the wherewithal and the playfulness to generate whatever it is in whatever way you would choose to, to allow what people want to do, yourself included, to be allowed and interesting and hopefully possible? Maybe not everything, but you know, something that's been around for 10 years, you know, your bucket list kind of thing. Okay. Then, you know, you've hit that second fundamental layer of just survival needs, which is, oh yeah, life doesn't suck, mm -hmm. you know? And then the inspiration point is, is again, much more about interaction and reciprocity, give and take, you know, with actual people, because <laughs> mm -hmm. you can't really get it in the same way. Uh, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't say turn off your TV or your computer. They're still helping uh, through association and stuff, keep us going. It just doesn't touch us in the same way. Because the point of this very quickly is until you're resting and residing in your actual autonomy as an adult, moving in the direction you choose to, standing on the foundation of those, you know, needs and wants and inspirations, you ain't even grown up yet. Hmm. Right. And that's why it's a midlife crisis because we don't raise people uh, I mean, I hear that we've probably mentioned Jordan Peterson on four or five of the last episodes because we did one on him. I mean, his first thing when he goes out to talk to people about is you're way stronger than you know. Right. There's way more going on in there than anyone has ever asked you to ask yourself. And his biggest, you know, complaint about universities is you go there to learn to complain better. Right. You go there to divide the world into its little chess pieces and pick your team and your tribe and then stand there with your placards and, and complain better. Right. And again, I'm not, you know, he's who he is, but the thing that inspires me about what he has to say is, you know, his thing is when you go to university, the first thing you should learn is you are now a rock star. You now have access to all of the best thinking ever recorded in the world and people who are experts on thinking about the best thinking everyone has ever done. Go for it. You are free with your autonomy as an adult to manifest anything you choose in the world. And you could, but we're not taught to think of ourselves that way. We're taught to think of ourselves competitively with other people to narrow our fields of interest. So the competition's more manageable. And again, we just run, <clears throat> kind of a muck in the world, assuming it's going to be fractured and disconnected and confrontational instead of collaborative and respectful and, uh, um, back to that, that sense of inspiration. Cause all, yeah, I mean, we talked about this a few podcasts ago where we, we brought up the fact that, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to be successful, the five people you spend the most time with are the people you're going to turn out to be like. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be six figure people, you need some six figure friends. And I don't mean that just about money. It's just a metaphor, you know, cause that's where we get our inspiration from. So I guess what I'm speaking to is why a midlife crisis can be so, um, violent for people. Cause we don't think about it until it takes over, which is why I wanted to call the episode rethinking a midlife crisis. Cause we haven't really ever thought about it. We just react to it. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, let me stop you there for a second. The, the, the idea that, um, uh, as you describe it, the way uh, Western culture approaches a midlife crisis, um, I, I, like I'm, you know, whenever you talk to me, I'm always distilling information inside my brain and always trying to make sense of that so that I can relay that back to the listener. And what I think I hear you saying is that 
um, being a teacher of sorts is a way to um, acknowledge the fact that you're in midlife and that you can go forward and be a better person to yourself and the world if you just teach. Yeah, and that, that's actually the third puberty uh, in Indigenous culture is to go from an actual recognized adult who is given the responsibility of taking care of your family and your part of your responsibilities for the tribe. That third puberty is now your job is to become a mentor or an orator or someone who actually guides the adults, you mm -hmm. know, in a subtle way towards the way the elders suggest our culture should go. I mean, that's just the, like the most resounding thing um, that in everything that you're saying. And maybe it's ringing in my ears because it's ringing in my ears even before I came to the microphone today. Me and my life today and how it is that I see the world, it's kind of like, okay, well, now what? Uh, and the, the thing that's been sort of, you know, the lovely smell that's been coming out of the kitchen, you know, the idea that's actually in my face is the idea of actually being something of a teacher or a mentor or a facilitator or something like that. Okay. And that's instinctual. Yeah. And, um, there's a real, uh, what's the right word? There's a lot of leverage behind that. And there's also a lot of like teaching, really? <laughs> like for me, I, I sort of look at that and I go, what the hell do you know? And then it's like, well, actually, I'll tell you what I know. Like, I, I've got a lot of different skills and ideas that I could totally share. Mm -hmm. um, and when I dip into that sort of idea, the sort of more positive idea of what that could actually be for myself, I get really excited. You know, like the idea of midlife crisis doesn't even occur to me as being kind of something where I need to sit in a corner and cry myself, you know, you know, while I'm cry, cry myself while I'm hugging myself. It's no, I don't have time for that. I got to go teach somebody something. <laughs> Yeah, and, and imagine the the difference of a person who, say like yourself, who's got enough awareness of your autonomy to actually just naturally go, well, yeah, that would be the next natural thing to do. And then you look at someone who's maybe living in a very different social environment where it's much more, you know, there's much more conflict, there's much more uh, pressure, there's a lot less kindness between people. Mm. So, you know, your instinct is to get your you know, your 50 bucks a day, you know, in your secret coffee jar, you know, for whatever it is you plan for your imagined future and everybody else can go to hell because you've locked into this, you know, seething, tight jawed, you know, white knuckled sense of I'll get what I came here for, damn it, and you guys can all go to hell because, you know, that's, that's, that's the theme, you know, get in any big inner city, that's, you know, walk down the street, mm -hmm. you know, you just know that's the way people talk to each other. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying it's a very different cultural milieu in which uh, your autonomy actually sees itself in the mirror because it's all about, you know, you versus the worst thing that could happen mm -hmm. instead of you finding the best thing that you could do with your whole life. You know? So this, this is where I just want to sort of shift the conversation because I'm wanting to give, give people an opportunity to, to kind of sit in the, the eye of the hurricane of kind of the mess of all sure. this. Sure. So let's just say we're going to talk about this in the context of the masculine and feminine. Now we could say men and women, but that's unfortunately going to polarize it a little bit in, in the listener's mind if, if they haven't thought about the difference between men and women and the inner masculine nature and feminine nature of every person. And if that's new to you, um, you know, just hang on, hang on and be patient because some terms aren't that simple and, and they're more powerful if we allow the meanings to be bigger. So this is all about, you know, essentially 
survival needs and then more playful wanted like survival needs and then more inspiring interactive collaborative needs and then you know you so when you look at the polarization of the masculine and feminine in the sense of for the sake of polarization the masculine ethos if polarized is fight or flight and the feminine ethos in the sense of survival is tend to be friend Right? So if you look at the typical 1950s marriage, and this isn't my advice, it's an anthropological, <laughs> you know, uh, bit of information, you know, the man would be the one going off uh, in terms of fight or flight to fight the good fight by slaying the dragon of, you know, taxes and, and you know, workaday paycheck kind of things, or, you know, however it is that person is going out into the world to fight or flight. The idea of fight, obviously, doesn't mean necessarily violence it just means going over the hill to solve problems away from people right the 10 befriend polarization is you know back in the 1950s maybe good or bad version of a marriage the the feminine would be sitting at home tending and befriending to things you know so obviously both men and women have both of these uh mm -hmm. capacities but if we were to look at the masculine strategy of uh solving problems in the sense of impatient reactive, you know, fight or flight stuff, and you're in midlife, what's the fight look like? And how much gumption do you have now that you're one of the, the saggier, <laughs> you know, uh, lions on the savannah, you know, or, or whatever. So, so it's just to notice that the, the, the real root base, um, I don't know, The, the real root kind of instinctual part of this in, in the masculine isn't nearly as powerful as we get older. So to rely on that part of yourself is kind of goofy. Hmm. You know, this is weird. I had this experience, maybe and this has happened twice now, driving here from where I was before uh, to sit down with you to do this podcast. I had another weird traffic incident. Almost the same one, actually. You know, Just I think today. About it. You know, 15 minutes before you got here. Okay. Um, I was driving up to where I live and I came around the corner and again, I'm, it was actually the same scenario, completely different experience though. You know, green light turning to amber light, turning to red light. I'm trying to turn a, take a red light and the guy who's trying to cross early is, you know, in a hurry, but he checks the lights and he gets out of the way and I pull around and I turn right. Same, actually exactly different, different part of town, but same thing. But this guy actually yelled really, really loud, like some kind of bull elk. Like the sound wasn't like, excuse me, sir, but it's my turn kind of thing. And I still had about seven seconds before the light actually turned green for the guy. Cause I was, you know, watching the lights, but he was so offended. He just yelled right into the open window of my truck, like a instinctually bleating elk. It was not a human sound. And I was just like, wow. And I knew I was coming home to talk about this conversation. So I was like, wow, what an interesting fragility of power, you know, and here we are. And I'm not, this isn't about race, but this was your typical angry white man in his probably sixties. And I was just wondering, not about the race thing or anything, but what does it feel like for a person to feel that much rage and that much impotence walking down a street? Hmm. And how many men, you know, and you and I are men, so I think we're naturally going to, you know, tilt in that direction in terms of our concerns. What does that say? Because I mean, I, I heard this when I was learning to drive, that the worst drivers in the world are old men with hats. <laughs> and that's proven true my entire life. <laughs> Where did you learn to drive? North Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> 
there you have it, folks. <laughs> but but anyway, I'm just saying like there's there's this pathology to men who age badly because mm. they become fragile and brittle and, and more aggressive and, and more powerless. But the powerlessness makes them more aggressive because it's just not fair. Right. Right. And again, that becomes, to, again, to my point about how the jealousy, resentment, frustration thing can completely ruin your sense of, you know, your actual nature as masculine, you know, boy or girl to run over the hill and solve problems because of a fundamental sense of, you know, unfair impotence. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we, as a culture or adolescents, who respects old people around here? Yeah, right. So our instinct as the, the bull elk, you know, I'm still here, you know, I'm still a bit saggy, but I'm, I'm, I'm knowing my stuff. And we just walk by them like, who cares, man? You know, it's all about the 20 year olds now. Right. And I, I'm not saying that that's true or not true. I'm just, I, I've just been sitting with that since, you know, you know, that, that, that moment driving home going, wow, that, that is actually really quite a, an instinctual, there's a sensation inside my body when I think of it, like around the core of my guts where I'm just like, oh God, I hope I don't turn into that kind of a person. Just don't wear a hat when you drive, you'll be fine. Well, he wasn't even wearing a hat. He was just standing on a street corner impatiently trying to get across. But that entitlement to be aggressive over nothing to mm. the point of making, you know, abrupt animal noises over nothing. Mm. Right. So I'm just saying that there, that, that, that's why midlife crises are so important to rethink. Because if you don't do it, you're going to turn into that guy or that girl. It just feels so. <clears throat> so let's look at the feminine. You know, tend to be friend. You know, how do we solve problems as, as that part of our nature? You know, as, as we look at the, the bigger problems, what comes to your mind? You know, in the, in the same way. Uh, I would say maybe doing too much outwardly for other people and not enough for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very easy in the sense of the feminine boys or girls, uh, to become what people call a doormat. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. The nice guy. Yeah. Or the, uh, or, or, you know, any, any of the women who are as much as a man doing the same job or, 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 mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Just, just that idea of being so far, um, you know, for, so far out there that they, that they're so disconnected from themselves that they need to be able to do something for somebody else because they can't feel anything for themselves. And, you know, the black belt goes to Anthony. Hmm. Right. Because <laughs> one of the, one of the worst things that happens in in the psychology of people on in the sense of the ten by ten befriend uh, kind of behavior is a kind of pathological dependency, hmm. right? So say you're raised by an alcoholic who's really really maybe not a violent scary person but just sort of an emotionally kind of abrupt and unavailable person. Okay. But you're aware that, you know, if, if they're having, and you're the child or the adult, you're aware that they're having a really bad day and they're not met in a certain way, the day's going to get worse and you're going to have less of what you wanted. So you become more vigilant to how they behave. Okay. Because right? this is classic codependence, mean, which means clinically to cooperate in dependent, like chemically dependent addictive behavior, which there's a thousand different versions of this. But once you stop caring as much about yourself, uh, or the only way you know you can get what you need as a child is to take care of other people's needs first. You're right back in the boat of apathy, resentment, frustration, jealousy, and all that kind of stuff. Because it's, you're not even living your life. You're just living, you know, ducking and weaving around other people's more louder lives. Mm -hmm. right? And, and that, that's where that tend to be friend tends to go wrong with people 
because we just, you know, we, we sort of sacrifice ourselves to, uh, the show. And I mean, we could probably spend five hours going into all of the different specific examples that might help specific individuals unravel a very, you know, bad experience in their lives. But it's just to ask ourselves to sit with that. So as the masculine, as we get into, you know, midlife and, and things like that, you know, we, we do need to allow how we present that in the world to change, to become more skillful, to become the mentor, not the yelling asshole at the, the street corner. And as the feminine, we, we have to ask ourselves, you know, am I tending enough, not enough or too much? Is the befriending response, um, something that is balanced between me and the person I'm attempting to find some kind of alliance with, or am I now the doormat that will do whatever it takes to allow the alliance to be formed? Mm. You know, and, and then this is true for both men and women. It's just to polarize the most painful, uh, disjointing part of our maturing process. Because both of those in excess, I'm always over the hill fighting the bad guy. I'm always in the, you know, room full of cribs taking care of babies or, you know, negotiating with our neighbors over what our cat did in their garden. You know, all, all of those things form our personalities and we're either doing it as our autonomous growing self-celebrating, you know, self, or we become smaller and smaller on the inside to make the outside okay. In, uh, as, as you're, you're talking about that, it's, um, I'm reminded of a situation that I had with my, uh, downstairs neighbor, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, um, without getting into the specifics of what actually happened, uh, I was just left thinking, um, where did he not learn how to be a better person, uh, because of how he acted in that, in, in that, uh, in that situation. And, um. I went through all kinds of things, you know, initially, um, it was like, ah, screw you and a whole bunch of other things. And, you know, maybe I'll just walk across the floor extra loud and bring all my friends in to go bowling down the hallway and things to piss him off, you know, all those sort of stupid ideas, uh, that sort of washed away. And I was left with almost feeling, um, uh, there, there was, there was resentment, but then it eventually it, that dissipated into something of almost kind of like, um, feeling sorry for him and then uh that washed away with just leaving me with the feeling of curiosity as to like here's this man who's uh i think he's 40 something um and his kid just turned 18 just left the house and uh is really emotionally unstable um has got no uh no social network um short of whatever it is that he may have on facebook you know, I, I just see how he lives his life and I'm just kind of um, uh, hoping that there would be something um, beneficial that he could actually sink his teeth into that would actually help him uh, make this sort of transition in a better way. And I'm not suggesting this this podcast is a, is a great pill for that, but <laughs> is, is, is there something more that you can suggest for somebody? I mean, I, I, join a club. Join a club. Join a class, go to a meeting. You mean like Rotary or something or? Mm, that That's, I think Rotary, if, if that's a thing around the world, I don't know. It I mean, is. Did you, can you think of a few other ones that are like that? Jeez, uh, I don't I mean, know. March of Dimes, the Lions Club. Yeah. Um, I guess I just, because I mean, people listen to this all over the world, so I'm trying to think of more of those things. But those things exist because of the positive side of a midlife crisis. 
So I, I do public speaking. So if I'm going to go and do public speaking, sometimes it's eight o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday when, you know, the rotary people hire me to come in and <laughs> talk about, you know, Alzheimer's or something like that. And there's nobody in the room under 50. Right. Well, I belong to the Qantas club right. a few years back. And, um, if I wasn't part of the group, I think the median age in that group would have been 73. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right? These guys were always giving each other gears of, you know, Army and Navy and Air Force, like they were that old, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but, but this is the thing is, I mean, that, that proves the, the often called, you not a genetic, but the evolutionary cultural predisposition for actual adults to band together to make the world better. Mm-hmm. But you can't become an actual adult until you can let go of your adolescent self. And the, I mean, the adult thing is supposed to be between 30 and 45 in the sense of indigenous understanding. So you're not really even a potential mentor until you're in your forties and fifties. Right. Right. But at least the, the instinct is still alive in humanity because look at all of those clubs. I mean, if you have any addiction issues, go to a meeting. There's 50 different kinds of addiction meetings you could go to. Not because maybe that's the only thing that's going to save you, but you're going to get to know your tribe until mm. your tribe becomes maybe a healthier tribe, right? And, and it isn't a competition. It's about start where you're at. So a few other things I wanted to just kind of get into more in a, in a really, I don't know, in, in a, into a conversation where people couldn't feel like they can kind of, this is a on a manly approach because I'm doing this project in my clinic with a bunch of tools, <laughs> <laughs> which I have to get back to in about an hour or so. But I want to give people some context where it feels like you got some wrenches on bolts that you can turn well, yeah, know, and, in, in the sense of like, now how can I actually put this into practice. And that's kind of the direction that I wanted the conversation to head to as well. Cause yeah. yeah, there's not, there's not a lot to say cause I okay. think it's all common sense, but all of that background theme, I think gives people a sense of, you know, how we can get, uh, kind of off the rails. I just want to talk about how to, how to bring yourself back on the rails. Cause mm-hmm. again, if you're rethinking a midlife crisis, that means you're actually thinking about making it less crappy. <laughs> Hopefully. <Absolutely>. Yes. <laughs> Unless you're like, I'm just going to make a mess. I'm going to be worse than Donald Trump or something. <laughs> Oh, I said the name of the one that should never be named. Oh no. <laughs> 45. <laughs> there you go. So we've talked about sex a bit. Midlife crisis, men and women, it's always about, uh, on, on, in the tongue in cheek sense, sorry, I said tongue in cheek, so now I'm <laughs> going to hell for <laughs> whatever that might mean, but. Um, if you're already going, you're just going to stay longer. <laughs> see, now we've talked about porn. There's no way back. Anyway. When you think about sex in midlife crisis and maybe slapstick movies, it's always about a lack of connection with a lot of other genitalia. Okay. Because, you know, you'll be married to somebody and they had this and now you're supposed to try and see as many other, you know, shapes and forms as you want. And nowadays it's, I don't know, what do you call it? Metrosexual culture. So we've got a lot of options out there depending on, you know, where you live in the world. So the question I have about that is, is it actually a lack of connection to a lot of other people's genitals in the sense of, I want to have sex with a whole bunch of other people compared to the one person I've had sex with for two decades or whatever, because that, that's where our, our minds go with sex, right? Oh, you just want to go and have sex with all these strangers and other people because it's new and different or younger or whatever. And it's like, yeah, well, that that's one part of the motivation. But the question really is, is what is the motivation you know, and the, the motivation may, may actually be to realize that intimacy, although we may hijack that with just sexuality, uh, intimacy is uh, a boundary dissolving experience in which you become met and you get to meet yourself and meet another person in unapologi- unapologetically unexpected ways. 
in really deeply mutual moments. Mm-hmm. Now that's magic that happens with your intimate other. And maybe in, in less physical ways, you know, with other family members and children in the sense of dissolving boundaries and, and, and other, you know, kind of control habits that we have to become closer to other people. Now, you get over the hill, you know, and you're not probably having more kids and your family shrink it instead of growing unless, I don't know, cloning becomes popular, <laughs> you know, and, and all of this other stuff, there's an instinct, deep, deep instinct to make sure you didn't lose a chance to dissolve those boundaries with more people or at least enough people. So it isn't always just about having sex with a bunch of, you know, new people. It's about realizing I need to make sure I dissolve my boundaries and connect deeply and unapologetically with other people because that's the best part about being here in that part of ourselves. And it isn't just sexuality. It's just about intimacy and, and being really met. And you can do that in all kinds of things with your clothes on. So it's not just about sex. It's just rethinking the motivation to go off and have sex with a bunch of other people. Because on, on a certain level, as your hormones change, you realize, hmm, you know, it's it's no longer three times a day. So maybe, uh, you know, as I project into the future TikTok, you know, how, you know, there is going to be an aggressive sense around, you know, the sex part. I'm just asking people to notice the impulse may not just be sexual because mm-hmm. it's fundamentally usually not. Because then, you know, instead of buying a Corvette, you know, and, and trying to find other people to play with in that way, you could take the same amount of time, you know, money and other things and create situations where you could have the most deeply intimate encounters on all kinds of levels, not just sex with, uh, as many different kinds of people in whatever way you want to, because that's the win. Mm -hmm. The number of people you meet intimately, you will never forget. And hopefully for the rest of the time you're here, they make up who you really are. You are not you. You are the people you have been completely you with. Right. And that uh, just makes me uh, just want to track back to the idea of being a mentor or teaching. I mean, that's definitely one way to do that, hugely, I would say. Hugely. Yeah. Or or you become really, really uh, a, a good pantomime and everyone just laughs at the fact that you're just full of pretense. And, you know, after a couple of years you give up because everyone's just sort of going, <laughs> you know, but, but at least, you know, you can, you can learn from that too. So anyway, sex, intimacy, it's, it's about something really, really profound, you know, and, and if that, that doesn't mean you don't want to go out and have fun. It just means it may be more, more than that. And if you know a person who's trying to figure that out, maybe helping guide them away from Corvettes and, and, you know, college students may give them actual more meaning in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm not putting that down. It sounds like a fun adventure. It just doesn't sound like you're going to really get a deep, profound amount of personal growth from it. No. You know, but, you know, you never know. Anyway, so another really important theme in in midlife crisis is the whole money security thing. Because the way we live in our lives, it's about accumulation uh, to a point where you can retire and not starve to death. You know, which is weird, but modern life is a bit strange. And depending on how that's going in your 50s, you've you've got 25 unless you're... I don't know. Some people want to retire at 55. I find that astoundingly weird. I don't actually ever plan on retiring at all. So it's not a, not a theme. I'm very. Retiring is for people with regular jobs, isn't it? I have no idea what, why people (laughs) want to stop living anyway. But, uh, anyway, retiring is, is sort of its own thing, but that context of having to stop creating conditions for, for 
whatever security you want, does put another kind of impatience and, and, and for some people, a certain kind of apathy and or a huge amount of resentment on everything because obviously the system isn't about fair. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it tries to be, but it doesn't try very hard. So that creates a, a lot of uh, pressure, a lot of conflict. And the, actually the number of divorces uh, that happen in 30s, 40s, or 50s is changing. The proportion of divorces in, in the 50s is actually starting to outweigh the number of divorces in the 30s. Because pe- people are just bailing, you know. I'll just take what I got and run. Good luck. You know, you're the person who was the breadwinner. Maybe you'll get more than 50% in the divorce. I, I don't know. But I was looking at the statistics uh, a few days ago because we were going to have this conversation and I was just surprised that the number of marriages that have lasted into their fifties, kids are off to college or whatever, that just fail because now there's no point because you're not raising kids together. Right. You've alienated each other in the passive aggressive, you know, screw you dance. If, if that hasn't been solved in your relationship. So why wouldn't you want to just leave? You could gain your own security and, and, and figure out your own thing and maybe, you know, chase around that college student, you know, as men or as women, you know, cause, cause that's, I mean, we live so informed by, by media, you know, that we just naturally go, oh, that's on the menu of next. Okay. Well, that's my decision tree. Flip the coin, stay or go. And it's going to look like this now. Right. And I mean, that's a startling thing. And I think if, if anything needs to be met with respect to the well being of us as a society, it's the apathy of people who are done parenting because they just become adolescents and we do not need more adolescents in the world, especially old grumpy ones with hats and cars. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then there's this this other thing that isn't just about sex or money, although it sounds like it. And it's just the idea of missing out. Missing out on life, missing out on. I'm going to just ask you, when I say the word missing out, how many things can you think of in the, just sort of the intuitive front of your mind that you've missed out on in your life? Uh, have you ever been to New York when the ball dropped? I used to watch it on TV when I was a kid. Not the same thing, man. Uh, so no. Right. And I just, that just popped into my head as just like a completely random, stupid thing that someone might actually go, oh, you know, I never even got to. Right. Right. Or I didn't get to see such and such a band or whatever it is, or. Make that list. Yeah. Make the list that you think you've missed out. And ask yourself, is that actually really what is core and essential to you and your experience as a being in the world? Hmm. And if they are, you got to get on that. That's your bucket list. You got to do that. If, if your core being says, I need to go and climb Machu Picchu, you got to go, right? Because you you've missed that out fundamentally and instinctually for whatever. But if you make that list of the things you think you've missed out, I would guarantee most people, if they sat down for 15 minutes and just thought about it, were like, no, that's just something I wanted to do when I was 25, or that's something my best friend really enjoyed doing, or, you know, I I just imagined that if I did that, I would get some other result, but I have no actual idea. Mm -hmm. But we can project like crazy. I I think I talked about this a couple of podcasts ago about the... Uh, the weird metaphor of thinking of your, your head is having a little bungee cord adventure camp on top of it going <laughs> off into weird directions. Yeah, right. Missing out is one of the longest bungee cord elastics that people use, mm-hmm. you know, next to what's wrong with me, which is probably a whole podcast in itself. But, <laughs> it's a right? much, much bigger bungee cord. Yeah, but missing out is a huge thing for people. And then there's this other side of, of things, which right now is actually the most, I don't know, 
it's the most talked about without being talked about part of our culture right now. Those damn young people. Or those damn old people. We're, we're actually, we have a, such a split right now in, in our cultural discourse between the people who run the world and the people who are going to inherit the world, that that's the world. The world right now is just a bitching contest between the old guard and the, uh, you know, the people who are saying, I can't believe you guys are this stupid from their point of view. And I'm not saying anyone's right or wrong here. I'm just saying watching the discourse is for me uh, in the conversation about rethinking the midlife crisis is huge because that's the crisis is we don't even have reliable young people to pick up the, the yoke when we put it down. Mm-hmm. And what's that going to do to us? We've been dragging this thing around our entire lives. You think we're going to trust someone to tell us that was just a bad idea? And I'm not saying these are good ideas. I'm just saying we can't, until we slow down and really start reconnecting as, as a culture in this way, this is going to make the midlife crisis ethos the worst it's ever been. And then I, again, I just, it just comes back around to the idea of uh, who you are as a mature person in the world, uh, affecting the lives of other people uh, and supporting people who are younger than you. Yeah. But when now we have this huge hole or vacuum in the, you know, how many young people want to listen to us now? Hmm. We, we've destroyed everything. We've left them with, you know, an entirely messed up thing from their perspective. I'm not saying about right or wrong. It, it's just, again, created this, this, uh, this shocking, tearing apart sense of distance. Yeah. Right. And again, that's, that's the problem or the, the impulse behind a midlife crisis is, you know, I, I, did I, did I miss out? Did I get what I was supposed to get? Did I make enough of a difference or do I care? You know, all of those huge, deep human, you know, impulses um, need to be something that you know, we're allowed to talk about. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we're allowed to actually make relevant. And maybe I think that would be a good place to start with the conversation between the, the younger people and, and the older people is, you know, what's the, what's the transition really about? You know, why, why are we at such a, a huge sense of separation? You know, and, and why isn't the conversation an actual conversation? Hmm. I've uh, got a friend here in town who had a experience with uh, uh, kids at the local high school. Uh, she's in her 70s, uh, and there was a group of seniors that got together to meet with these kids who were in high school. Um, and it was basically an AMA, Ask Me Anything uh, kind of experience. Wow. Where uh, uh, these kids who were 16, 17, 15, uh, we're asking seniors about, um, you know, what's, uh, what can I expect in my life around sex or what's sex life, you know, like just anything, anything, right. anything, anything. And, um, the net result at the end of this, uh, meeting of the minds, if you will, uh, was that they wanted to do more of it. Um, there wasn't any real profound answers. Uh, it was just uh, profound experiences of, oh yeah, I've lost three or four businesses in my life and I've uh, lost two wives and one of them died and, you know, one of my kids and blah, 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 blah. Like these old people telling stories of uh, amazing adventures in their lives, uh, adventures in air quotes, like wh- whatever it is that they did in their lives. Uh, and these these kids just asking them questions uh, based out of um, curiosity and quite often fear, mm-hmm. uh, fear of the unknown. Um and it went back and forth where the um, uh, the adults in the room, the seniors in the room, uh, were asking questions of the kids. Um, wow. Like, what are you doing around sex? And like, just trying to understand what they're doing. So, um, and I only share that just as kind of maybe as like a, uh, a bit of hope <laughs> that this, uh, 
this this uh, chasm that exists between, you know, millennials and the old folks, or uh, the old guard and the, uh, the the younger generation. You know that there is there are people out there who are aware and might actually be doing something about it. I just saw this thing which I didn't look into, but I'm really excited about. Um, and all I can report is the very snippet of kind of the headline of it, but it was basically a lot of old people who have, you know, paid off their five bedroom house that their family never wants to go back to. Um, and they're old. And then there's a little, I'm not sure exactly what their millennial means, so I don't want to offend anyone, but, uh, the quote was basically, you know, old people with big houses and young people with no housing. Mm-hmm. And someone started a business that's more of a favorable version of Airbnb in the sense of, you know, you're trying to rip everybody off, but finding a place for millennials to live at a, at a reasonable kind of rent that helps old people. And now you've got these millennials and old people living. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Michael Smith. The recording device that we were using somehow stopped working about a minute and a half before the show was over. So all you really missed was us finishing up. Next week is going to be a conversation about how apple cider vinegar and how kombucha work and whether or not they're safe and if there is any possible dangers. Uh, We'll learn about that next week. So hope you're doing well and thanks for listening to Fusion Health Radio. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.